So we're rolling. Cool. We are live. This is You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson-Leary, and my name is Mark, and I have a passion that you should feel in control of your life, and so I want to help entrepreneurial leaders feel more in control of their business. So today we are here with my friend, Gotti Pollock, who is an extraordinary leadership coach, an inspirational friend, uh, been coaching a, a lot of lot of people for a lot of years, and is actually the developer of the Five Core Leadership Power Coaching System. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you, Mark. How are you? I am excited to embark on a conversation with you and see where this takes us. Yeah, me too. I don't know where we're going to go. We've had some pretty deep conversations through the years, and so we're going to kind of find out where that goes. I guess, um, you know, coaching is really, well, there's a lot here, right? So coaching, coaching peer groups, mentorship, there's a whole big, it's a whole big subject that I, I would love to kind of stir the pot on. And you've got experience with all of it, right? So peer group, leadership, mentor groups, mentoring, being mentored, being a mentee. So, <laughs> wow, as I think about this, what a, what a great resource. I, I want to go where this goes because I know a lot of like, like my clients and my friends have all uh, hired coaches. You know, they see me as some form of coach, at least for the leadership team, but that's not individual coaching. Uh, and I see, in fact, what kind of really got me thinking uh, I have had a few people I've talked to in the last couple of months who are overwhelmed with how much coaching they have. They're like they got addicted to coaching and they're getting feedback and advice from many different channels and it's causing them some confusion about how to make decisions. So, um, you know, how do you, th how do you think about coaching? Oh, what a great way to start. Um, the first word that comes to mind in coaching, my first word, is homeostasis. Okay. And that is really our body's ability and our desire to be whole and to be complete with all the talents and gifts with which we arrived on this earth. Um, example I give is when we break a bone in our arm, say, the body heals itself. We go to a doctor so that it'll set the right way. But it's actually our body healing itself. The second thing that comes to mind in regard to your question about so many people who can become addicted to coaching. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the thing. I didn't make that up. That sounds like. Sure. <laughs> For high achievers, and I love working with high achievers who have overcome some form of, of adversity, of challenge, of trauma in their backgrounds, people who are really, really driven to achieve all they can be and, and create businesses and create organizations and impact the world in a significant way for the better. Part of um, the avoidance of pain comes with addiction. When we have... Okay, a lot of things kind of clicked for me right there. Right. When we, we have an inner pain that is unresolved, that have we become none to, our body gives up hope of releasing the pain and searches for ways of applying balm to the wound, of solving the pain of it. And that becomes addictive behavior. And that could become any behavior doesn't just have to be sex, money, alcohol, or drugs. Sure. It could be work. Yeah. It could be exercise. It could be coaching. And God, that's so, I mean, I just want to pause on that because that sounds kind of obvious 
when I look back at this, but I just was surprised to suddenly see like, oh, the, the, something that is sort of labeled clearly as the way to fix stuff for many people may be the way to hide the stuff they need to fix. <laughs> Anything could be a way of avoiding something that at some point our bodies decided is too much for us to handle. So the third thought that I have about coaching is that if you look at the human body, our eyes look out. We can see everybody else's faults. We can see their strengths. We can see what we would do. We can see where they struggle, why they struggle. What we don't see is ourselves because our eyes look out. They don't mm -hmm. look inwards. Right. And to me, the whole nature of how as humans we're wired, we're wired biologically to connect for our survival. In other words, having friends, having relationships is an innate need, a survival need. And part of that need, I think, is to know ourselves through how we reflect back to others. And so there is a need for connection in order to achieve our full potential. The fourth thing I would say is finding the balance. In, in my own life, I know that I have struggled my entire life with issues that I tried to solve on my own for decades and failed. It was only when I found a coach who understood my history and had traversed a similar path that I was mm -hmm. able to break through. So there's no doubt to me that coaching is, um, is in the context of human relationships, helps us see the things that we're blind to about ourselves. The fifth thing I would then say is, it's a comment upon us as humans to balance the homeostasis. What do we know innately, our instincts that come from inside that nobody else can tell us? And when do I need to take input from others about data that I'm missing? So that, in, that internal voice, are you referring to just things we know about ourselves or is deeper like what Jack Canfield would call the inner whisper? I think it's the inner whisper. Okay. And, and we, we're talking now. We have microphones to mm -hmm. amplify, right? Yeah. There's the outer voice that helps us see the things we can't see. And I think our job as humans for achieving maximum potential is knowing when to balance the inner whisper and the outer voice. Because, I mean, I want to kind of, for people who might not know that concept, I coach a lot of people to understand that their life is their own destiny. And you're, when you're especially startups or somebody who is feeling in the presence of other wisdom, other people who know more and have more experience, they tend to kind of give up a little of their own autonomy and, and, and sort of... And I see people struggle with like, hey, I've got this really smart, very experienced person telling me to do something. Something doesn't feel right. You know, help me. How do I decide? And I say, look, you got you got to live with the outcome here, not them. Your path, your life, you go with what works and feels for you and learn to, to respect your inner whisper, your inner voice about, you know, even if this is the wrong path, you're going to pay the check, not them. So be, be, be plugged into that. And it's not easy to tune in to your own guts. Um, commitment to to your own path absolutely and if there were points it might have been too painful to tune into our inner wisdom our inner voice and we might have avoided it and that becomes disassociation and then we are constantly seeking external stimuli that will produce a feeling of well-being within so that balance knowing 
when do I need external data to complete what I'm missing? When do I listen to the external voice? And when do I reach the point where I have heard enough? I need some time for contemplation, for reflection, for being with that inner voice and hear what that inner voice is telling me about all the data I've taken in from everybody. Well, I mean, you're, you're, so many things are just springing to mind right now. And the one question that I want to just kind of plant the seed on and not try to answer right now, but through this, I want to start to answer the question of how does somebody find the right coach for them, for that time, for that moment, for those problems, for that aspect of their life, which is I'm kind of foreshadowing a little bit how I think about this because I do think it is, time, it is timing based, it is need based, it is potentially temporary. Uh, and there's lots of factors that go into that, but the how to find that, and, and the precursor to that is that for, for anybody who is not aware of what the standard, that's a terrible word, of the most common definition I hear about coaching has to do with this idea of self-discovery of the person being coached. It, there's, there's this idea of it's not your journey, it's their journey. You're helping them figure out what it is. You're helping them discover their own journey, which is interesting, and I'm comfortable with it, having heard about it this way for so long and, and trying to pursue it. But there's also the more everyday version of coach. It's Bill Belichick, you know, Greg Popovich. These people are not seeking the inner wisdom of their players they're saying no go, slow down go faster look behind you your, your left foot is turned too far to the right and they're hands-on and there's a path there's a vision they're bringing to the table and i think that there's reason to talk about those two sides because you know if, if you want to play the game at a high level you might want to learn bill belichick's system you know it's not all about hey you know i'm a player you know tell me how me create my own system like no belichick system works i want that system <laughs> so how do you see that uh, how much do, how much spice does the coach bring versus how much discovery and blank slate should your coach bring so it's so it's interesting I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, first one is um, the five core leadership power is a system of self-discovery. Okay, okay. It moves so it's, it. a, so it's a system. So you say actually it's a little bit of both, right? It's like I have a system that will help you find you. Okay. Yes, in, in a guaranteed way. Okay. Um, the second thought I have, if we go to the football analogy, uh, if you think about draft day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. teams have 15 minutes <laughs> to make a decision that will be worth potentially millions, tens of millions of dollars. Sure. Uh, in which they're betting a lot. Um, and and that, by the way, the bets statistically are not that awesome. Like, you know, it, it's not a 90%. Like your, your first round drafts, I think it's some very dismal percentage, like half of them even survive three years in the, in the league. And that is a great challenge of life where you can look at all the objective criteria of what makes a great draft choice of a number one. Yeah. And how many have been busts. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and what I would argue is that what's been missing is the internal experience of the person and how are they going to react in the situation where they go from being a superstar at college to an acceptable player at a whole different uh, league. So that's the second thought. The third thought I had was in those 15 minutes where teams have to choose, they have a philosophy or thought 
about what they're going to do when now they're faced with this array of choices. And one is fill the need that our team has, the best player that fills the need. The other is the best player on the board and structure our team around his talent. Right. Okay. Okay. So to your question of, well, Bill Belichick has a system uh, and is a great coach and it's been proven. And whatever the determinants of his success, it's scalable. And for me, I was driven to create and understand the five core power leadership is I wanted the reliability and predictability to do what Bill Belichick does in football with leaders. Okay. And that's what it does. And it's a system that helps us stay focused and not disassociate from our inner experience, our inner powers, the places where we have been absolutely the most effective in life, which also tells us where we're struggling, where we're succeeding, tells us why we're struggling, tells us why we're succeeding, how to do more of success, less of struggle. So in my mind, I'm thinking that, well, I mean, there's still kind of a gray area of, like, well, we know that certain players, like you said, Bill Belichick, well, Greg Popovich is a better example. For those people who don't know basketball, this is terribly specific, but, the, but it's no, well known that, like, he has a culture. Like, if you want to be a superstar on the San Antonio Spurs, you're not for the, not the right guy for the team. Like, no, LeBron James is not going to the Spurs. That's not happening because he, he, everybody plays together. It's a team effort. It's not about that. Mm-hmm. So to coach that team to excellence, you got to say, yeah, I want to learn that way. There, I have a self-discovery, and part of that has said that I'm fine to subordinate my ego to some extent, and that's a team I think I can, can work on. So there's a, a meeting in the middle of – there's certain things that this system produces. It's not totally blank slate. It's within a lane. There's there's constraints. And if you like the constraints, we'll get great things out of you. So how does that fit into your thinking of like, you know, hey, I've got to, because to be specific, when you talk about the system, I I believe in what I call a process-driven tools-based approach. Like that's what's what I do. That's what I teach. And I am a huge believer in the idea that if we can processize things that are consistent and predictable, it frees me up to do really powerful, predictable things in the really artful pieces that aren't so predictable. And so that, that framework is just very high leverage to create whatever outcomes are created. I've got a tool set, I know how to use the tools. So I don't wanna work with people who don't have a pre uh, predetermined tool set because I think it's random what, what the produce, what's produced. Success is kind of an accident in that scenario. So I get that that's what you've created, but what, is there something in your system that says, like, you know, here are some, here are some reasons why people might, might want my system versus why people might not want my system? Oh. So you talked about culture okay. with Greg Pakovich and, and say the answer for Greg's team when they're choosing the draft choice is we're going to look at the talent. We're going to look at the need the club has. And maybe primarily we're going to look at the culture of our organization and the culture of that person. And when that, those two cultures mesh, the individual and the organization, rather than having friction, you have an extra energy and extra leverage, and that's where the value is created because you take multiple people, it creates a team that has more power than the individuals because the cultures are aligned and working together. 
So, I mean, that's a core values thing. So uh, that's a cultural thing. Every company I work with, they've got to get clear on what their core values are, what the culture needs to be like. So I guess I'm, I've never thought about it in terms of, which I don't know why, um, coaching has to have the same elements. There's a core value concept going into this. Because I guess, I guess where I'm reacting is that every coaching book I've read is like this blank slate approach. And uh -huh. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Except that people sometimes want a nudge. They, they're like, you know, I don't want blank. Like I have a specific thing and, and I don't want, and I, we are highly competitive. I'm highly individualistic or I'm highly team oriented. And I do think there is this idea of what's the backdrop? What's the context? You know, maybe there is clear, because coaching is about discovery, I think. I, you know, it is not about dictation. That, that's, that could be a leadership attribute. That could be visionary. That could be direction. But coaching is about asking better questions, either metaphorically or literally, about how, you know, what are the obstacles? What is going on? What don't I know? But I do think that there is a portion of the formula that is, what aren't we going to challenge? What is an assumption going into this conversation that we're not going to talk a lot about, but if we don't agree on, is going to create conflict? Yeah, so for me, the culture of people that I work best with, where this system yields the highest results consistently, is people have overcome challenges in life and have reached a point where they are willing to look internally. They're no longer satisfied by external success, by the car, the company, money. That, that's not enough for them. They've started to recognize that the answer lies within but they don't know the pathway. And they're looking for a guide of somebody who has explored and has found power and value that way. I just think, I, mean, I wanna make this as tangible as possible. I mean, we're getting into stuff I love. It's, it's, it could be a little bit theoretical sounding. Um, you know, when you go find a, a coach, which I've done multiple times, and I, wow like how different is a coach from the next one and and so many it's self-described coaches self prescribed self-constructed and you know people come many people show up with like hey i it's people told me i was good at coaching so i've been doing it ever since okay is that a resume I, maybe it, it, it doesn't sound predictable and then other people they have a follow, follow a specific methodology and then pricing and it, I, I, I did some research at one point about an individual coach you know there was one guy who was a nice book reputation hangs out with very well-known people and is a mastermind group with people whose names you would know and this person charges fifteen thousand dollars a quarter and so you know that's real and, and to me that's almost like that's almost part of the sales pitch like if you know 15 grand a quarter like well that better that guy better be good but I don't really know what's he doing again like, like helping me be better what's what's my better because the the coaching philosophy is sort of like well you decide what's better you know if you're going to transform your world can you put a price on that well no I can't but maybe there's some can we get somewhat tangible about what the context are we trying to transform financially are we trying to transform leadership wise are we trying to transform my my family life are there some things we should share in common belief wise like how we transform is there a religious aspect to what we do which is not talked about very much. I think that would be a very fair question. So, you know, in tangible terms, what do you see that's like differences? Like uh, when somebody's looking for a coach, what are, what are the questions they should be asking about? What do you believe? Sure. Great questions because it's so personal and it's so hard to know. And we're doing so much on faith. And if we've had coaches and it's not worked out, or this is our first coach that we're looking for, we're going into the unknown. 
um, the first principle comes back to homeostasis. Like, we know. We need to be comfortable with that situation. So I'd sit down and talk to a coach and see how I feel at the end of the conversation, number one, and trust my instinct. So the homeostasis, that's essentially saying we're here having a conversation with a coach for a reason. Right. Some, something said today is the day. You know, we put it on our list. We said, I right. need to find a coach. It wasn't probably just that friends suggested we did it. It was right. we, friends suggest and, and things all the time. And for somehow this one made it to the list and I'm talking with somebody, something needs to be repaired, fixed, enhanced, or created. The second question I would ask is, what is the number one problem that I'm trying to solve? Why am I talking to this coach? What am I not achieving? on my own that I feel I could achieve? What problem am I dealing with unsuccessfully or avoiding with which I'd like the help of a coach? Okay. I need to know that before I talk to anybody. I need to know what problem I'm trying to solve. Okay, so that sounds actually confusing to me because um, so much of coaching is sort of like trying to unwind that, I think. Uh, And because I've even had conversations, I mean, what I do is coaching on on a different level. Uh, it, and so I spoke with, a, uh, I work with many different type of businesses, everything from, you know, from manufacturing to law firms. I spoke with an attorney and, the, and, the, and this guy was a well-known litigator. And, and I said, so what do you want? What, you know, why are we, why would we embark on this process? And I want to be the most well-known attorney. I want to be like all those people, you know, and something in the conversation left me a little suspicious that this person might have might feel very accomplished and wanted to be more accomplished because they were competitive. And, and there's some, some, some triggers there. And, the, and basically the trigger f- is that it, once people check a lot of boxes, a lot of people do that. Now, many people get to a spot in their life and they've actually done the things they thought they were going to do in their life. Mm. They've been married. They've got a nice house. They, their, biz, their business is, is great. And, and they're kind of out of bucket list boxes, and, but they're still motivated to do something very different. Now, these boxes... I mean, for me, I had a very small list of not that amazing boxes. And so they were all checked off pretty early. Some people have really hard ones and they check them off really early. But, I, but so if, just, if you've checked off all your boxes, that might not mean, or if you're feeling like you, you haven't checked your boxes, you might have big boxes. But let's just say when, when the boxes start getting checked off, we start putting goals on our list from random places, from our peers, from people we compare ourselves to and our friends. And so all that to say that I was wondering if the things he were suggesting weren't things that he borrowed from his peers. And I said, well, I said basically what I just said to you. I said, you know, what if, what if those aren't your goals? What might your goals actually be? And he said, actually, you know, I'd love to spend more time with my family. Mm. And I said, you know, that's not very sexy, but it's a lot more believable. Now, how hard are you willing to work for that? I said, really hard. And so there's a lot of transformation to put a law firm into an entrepreneurial business uh, approach. A lot, right. of, a lot of cost and time. And so that put it in perspective. Like, are they, are they willing to build structure? Are they willing to pay the price? And, and he is. So that's what they're doing. Yeah, I do think that um, oftentimes we start off, as you describe with a superficial exterior level of, I want the things, well, what do I want? Well, the things my friends have. Right, right. Right. And then when challenged, as, as you did, to go deeper, they'll tell you something that they actually want that may not sound that sexy. Right, right. But it's real because it comes from the inside. That's where you start working. And I would then 
get clarity on that and interview coaches. And at the end of the interview that I have with them, I would want something tangible that I had learned from that conversation because that will tell me what my future experiences will that person are going to be. Yeah, I think to me, that's what I want from coaching. And, and to some, there's, a, there's a large portion I did, did not prof- profess to be an expert on this. Uh, I have experienced coaching on many levels from you and from other people. Uh, and so I, I believe I understand what coaching is about. But it is really what I want is somebody to see something about me that I couldn't see. And I do find for myself that I'm a tough nut to crack. Like a lot of people, like very few people can see many things about me that I don't already know. And so when I do encounter somebody uh, who can get on that nerve and say something a little humbling or a lot shocking, right. uh, uh, it's like, whoa, okay, you, wait, don't move. Because you were able to see things that other people weren't able to see. Let's, let's go right. into the blind spot and help me with that. That's what, that's what I think coaching is about, being able to get something that I just didn't, couldn't get for myself right. in the conversation. And so I guess the real question is, when you can improve all parts of your life with infinite possibility, because a coach, any good coach, is going to be able to speak into the infinite possibility. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's try to make that plain. Like really good coaching. The coaches I know are all trained to say, like, how big is your future? I'm good at it. Um, and and that's that's sort of priceless. Whatever we're talking about is priceless in the future. And so if you talk to five coaches and they're all good, the odds are really high that they're all going to get you excited about something really big and limitless. And you're going to have to ask yourself the question like, you know, which facet of that diamond am I going to go after? Cause I can't and shouldn't do them all. And I guess, so how do you make a decision or how do you help kind of guide somebody through that process of, of, Starting with the need, I feel like I'm going to grow something. I have a problem. I'm going to have a conversation with a coach, and they're going to reword it for me and hopefully give me some clarity or, or even challenge me that that's not my problem at all. Right. Um, and you're narrowing it down to, like, you know, the most important thing. Yeah, so this brings me back to a comment you made about uh, various coaches, how they got to be coaches. Um, I coached the way I was coached. And my coach was an Israeli Special Forces General who I reconnected with when I became a coach because I felt that I was transmitting what he had taught me on the battlefield to leaders. And in the course of coaching conversations over 11 years, what he did was he pointed out the core leadership powers that I had buried in the field of combat that were too painful to see because they were tied up with trauma. And he was relentless about pointing out to me what my powers were. And I rejected them. I blew them off. I didn't believe him. Because hmm. that was my defensive mechanism, keeping me away from the trauma that I was trying to distancing myself from. And he was relentless and courageous and wouldn't let me escape the trauma under which my powers were buried. And so I eventually embarked on a journey to release the trauma through therapy so I could access the core leadership powers. That is exactly what I do with leaders. I help them see the core leadership powers that they themselves are not aware of or not seeing. So what did, what did he do? What was he saying? What, what did it sound like when you were kind of getting the relentless encouragement about your leadership abilities? My view of combat was that I had not done much and nothing much had happened. 
which was a protective measure because it was really a high-intensity combat over 19 days and then eight months. Um, and my brain had just disassociated from that experience. And he was very specific about places we had been, combat we had been in, that I had deleted. And when I trusted him, and that's a big component of coaching is trust, and started to believe him and believe that he had no ulterior motive, even though my brain was saying he's nuts and he's wrong and I have no idea of what this man is talking about or why he's saying it. Mm -hmm. I trusted him and respected him enough. So you have to trust and respect your coach. That I was willing to accept the truth of what he said, even though I believed I had no data to support it. I had no memory of it. It couldn't be true, but yet he said it was true. Then I asked myself, what's the last thing I remember before I don't remember? And I actually got answers. Mm -hmm. And I started to work with those answers to un unveil the trauma and really connect and see myself as not only that I was strategic and I was always interested in history, and that was innate to me, and I always practiced till I became the best in anything I did, but also the parts that I wasn't seeing was that I was empathic and I could feel people's feelings, and I was very flexible. I could adapt quickly to changing situations, and I didn't see myself as being courageous. I just saw myself as being the same as everybody. And he told me specifically about people who did not go to the battle, who turned away from the battle. He was highlighting that the courage that I displayed it was, was a, unique. Yeah. And it was only when I started to have a relationship with the qualities of empathy and flexibility and courage and accepted it and was empathic towards myself, courageous towards myself, that those powers started to come alive. So how did that, how did the, because you, this language in, in, the, in his activities in retrospect were very powerful. In the moment, you sounded like you were dis dismissing them. Exactly. And now down the line, you have, you're, oh, you've become, you know, in the past from now, but in the future from then, you are realizing that there's something unanswered and there's, something's not quite right and you need to repair that. What does that feel like? It felt to me like I was drawn to him. Okay. I was drawn to speak to him. I, in my mind, was making a connection between being a chair at Vistage and coaching leaders and an experience I'd had in the battlefield. It took me 11 years of coaching. And so you were, you were drawn to him years after you were in the battlefield with him? Correct. Okay. I felt that whatever, even though logically I had a good life and everything was good, there was something incomplete that was somehow related to him. I had enough of that sense. So I was drawn to him to have the conversations. Okay, so just for people who don't know, Vistage is a group that you're a, you're a, a chair for Vistage as well. And so you help facilitate a peer group, which is different than mentorship and coaching. It's, it's people who are... Uh, there's different groups, but we'll just say they're leaders, usually CEOs, but there are other groups who are peers of, of similar size businesses with similar size challenges or similar challenges, right. and you facilitate them through that, which is, so that's a different part of this. But in your journey of helping people become better leaders, something is causing you to want to raise your game and solve for something that you feel is holding you back from being your best. And this starts drawing you back to your history of being in battle. Exactly. So when I have that need and I'm talking to a coach, and, and I'm talking to a coach because I, I have a need, I have a sense that perhaps I can't put into words, 
perhaps I'm in denial about it to some level, but I'm drawn to get better, to feel, to overcome, to do something in a more effective way than I have in the past, to confront something that I'm avoiding. Okay. So how did that unfold? It was really a remarkable story in which about 11, five years into our conversations, he specifically told me about specific combat-related events that I was then confronted with. I have no memory. The man claims that I was there. He's firm about it, and he's telling me that I deleted it. Hmm. I accepted that, and I started to question myself about okay, so what's the last thing I remember before I don't remember anything? I accepted the fact that I don't remember rather than saying it never happened. I shifted. And that's when I was a coach of my own with a peer group of chairs about building my practice and getting better based on my own unique contribution in history that the coach suggested that I get therapy. And I resisted that because okay. I, didn't, I didn't live under a bridge. I didn't have any trauma. I'd raised a family. I'd run a business. I didn't see myself as being traumatized in any okay. way, shape, or form. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But again, I respected the coach because she had had a history of overcoming trauma and she eventually convinced me. And then I did go to therapy. And I did have that image of a burnt-out bus on the battlefield mm. that that was the last thing I remember before I don't remember because I accepted that I don't remember. And I also accepted that I didn't remember for a reason. So rather than forcing myself to remember something that I was unwilling to remember, I accommodated myself, and I was loving to myself and caring to myself, respecting to myself by saying, so what's the last thing I remember before I don't remember? Mm -hmm. And amazingly enough, our brains have all this terabytes of data mm -hmm. that if we ask it with a specific information, with a specific question, and a desire, true desire to understand, it will give us an answer. And my brain gave me the answer in the form of an image, which I then took to a therapist that then unfolded a whole series of events and using very powerful methodologies, some that I learned in therapy and many that I found on my own reading over 200 books in which I was actually able to understand that the trauma is held and encoded in our vagus nerve and that we can release it and be access to all our leadership powers, all of them, and then have that sense of achievement and fulfillment and completion and that there's something, I'm, I'm in good shape, but there's something missing, right? That was my feeling. I'm, I'm in good shape. I don't have a problem. There's just something missing I'd like to get um, my arms around. And so I started working with my coach during that period because she approached me. She had worked with other chairs. So I had trust and credibility in her because I had seen her work with other people who I had seen become better. So that, I think, is another coach. If, if the coach that you're working with, that you have external evidence, that you have seen people you know become better, I don't think there's anything more powerful than that. So I trusted her and was open to her approach. And that's a big takeaway for me, that it's, it's really about what part the tr I think I don't think there's enough dimension and depth to put we could put on what that trust looks like. I mean, I think it's the the, the example of being on the battlefield. Battlefield, somebody you trust so much with your life. You know, it's a totally different conversation. It's a different way of thinking. If we're 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 on a mission of some sort together. The the things I'm learning is in a much richer way than a, than the opposite 
tactical approach of like, hey, I'm struggling with some staff and I need to know whether I need to fire this person or not. Very tactical and, and you can just sort of put it all in a box. Like, do I trust this person? Sure, they've fired people before. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm trying to tackle many concepts at once, but this, I, I, I think that understanding how how deep is this coaching going? It's probably the biggest question. Because I think that, I suspect that a lot of people enter coaching with a very tactical sense. Like, I wanna work with a business mentor who can help me decide to fire and faster and enter and exit markets and things like that, and that's cool. But I, I think that when we start that path, we encounter, I know I have encountered, um, patterns and behaviors like well it's it's not as simple as knowing when to fire there's there's reasons i keep coming up with people who need to be fired and there's reasons i keep pulling the punch on firing them or doing something different. there's my own behaviors and you you tend to you've done a lot of work in the deep realms like you really try to get into the behaviors and things behind the the, the, the scenes and so how do you see that continuum working together as sort of like, hey, you know, you want to do a little coaching. What does that mean to you? Oh, I'd like to be a slightly better leader. I'd like to sell a little more. I'd like to be a little stronger in front of my staff. I'd like to make some better strategic decisions. Well, that sounds very reasonable. And we might have to. That's not what that. I would say. I would say, why? Why do you want yeah. to be better in front of your staff? Okay. So, so. Yeah. So, so how does that, do you find people who say like, why are we going there? I wanted to know just to hire this, fire this person or, or do they, or do they generally get it? And 90% of the time you really say, I'm glad we started with this very reasonable conversation and we're going to go a long way from where you started. I think many people like myself, um, approach a coach with a specific problem. Once we recognize that the answer lies not outside of us, but inside of us, not somebody else is to blame, but that it's our decisions, our patterns, who's the type of person I hire, and why do I recreate this situation? Like, what is the pattern that I'm living? For people who are willing to, con those are the people I work with, the people who reach the point where they want to fix their lives at a fundamental level. They see it as being something slightly deeper than just a little more knowledge. Or, or much deeper than a little more knowledge. They, they go deeper. We go deeper to solve the problem. Like myself, I didn't have a problem about unknown. I didn't think I had trauma. I just felt there was something related, that I was drawn to be a chair. There was something related. I wanted to explore it. And I think as business people, we are drawn for, we live in the real world, in the physical world, and we have physical problems. They're the ones to which we give priority. So I start with an actual problem. I want, uh, I want to have more clients, or I want to grow a business, right, or right, right. In, in some way. And on that journey, as we discover, well, why don't I have the clients that I feel I'm capable of? And then what are the behaviors that I'm engaging in? And then how can I change those behaviors so I create a better life, achieve the goals for which I set? And then I may discover, as you said, well, I achieved that goal, but I still have a yearning or a desire to achieve something else. But I can't tell you what it is. But, but I'm here to put meat on the bone and to figure out how I could achieve. What are the things that give me meaning and purpose in life? Do you ever encounter anybody who's not feeling in some way really stuck, truly? Meaning, uh, I, I guess, you know, the people who do, uh, my hypothesis is that 
because we look at people who are very successful, we assume they feel as successful as they look to us. Yeah. And behind that, you know, I've had the hypothesis that the most successful people are the most broken feeling because they're that's the motivation like they you know they have some childhood trauma some some something in their life that made them feel so incomplete that they went into overdrive mode as opposed to just being so talented it was so easy because I, I just don't think that's common or even may, may not be existing at all that, the, that they were just so talented that their outrageous success was inevitable it was it was virtually effortless for them just a little bit of discipline they're off the off the races I, I i tend to think that it's like there was such a need, such a desire, such a burning uh, drive that, that came from somewhere. Yes. But do you encounter people who are kind of like, you know, this is basically pretty good, or you know, the more motivated they are, the more reason to be coaching, the more likely it is to say like, you know, there's something here and we need to un, 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 unwrap it. We attract the people that, are, um, that share our values and our goals and our experiences in some way um, through which we can have connection. So many of the people that are drawn to me are people who have overcome some difficulty, some challenge, some adversity, some trauma in their life and are driven. What happens with trauma when our life is at risk, we get this supercharged energy to survive. And then when it, that energy is not released, it stays within us and we transfer it to achievement and achievement and achievement. And then at some point, the inner experience that the high achievement can no longer mask the inner experience. So in terms of the people that I'm connected to and drawn to, my experience was working with the CEOs of companies that are 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 100 million. The view from the outside is, oh, these people are the top people in the country. These mm -hmm. people have it made. They have budgets. They make decisions. They control the lives of tens, hundreds, thousands of people. Mm -hmm. yeah, they, yeah. They're it. And yet my view from the inside spending 6,000 hours talking to these people was that they have all the same fears, all the same apprehensions as anybody else. And I think the difference between them is they're quicker to see when something is not working and they're quicker to address it. Yeah, that remind. I mean, I've worked with companies who are between, you know, the smallest companies might be nine, six, six to nine, the smallest company, I think probably six people to work with. But I work with people who are companies that several hundred employees. And uh, I, I was was remarkable to me a, a few years after doing this kind of work that it wasn't like I couldn't I couldn't identify it's not that there aren't differences it's that I couldn't identify the revenue by how the leadership team felt or how they looked or how they acted like I like I would be I would really be clue, like was this is this company like a nine million dollar company or like a 90 million dollar company and I wouldn't know and I'd have to go look at the data because the leadership team had the same problems same challenges same things and, and how we solve problems um, and how we interact with it are just so very, very similar. What, what is different is like types of companies, like a tech startup is like so different than like a pipe and insulation company in terms of how they interact. But that is nothing to say about the ability to execute. Like you, like I, I'm not gonna say that that tech company is gonna execute better than that pipe and insulation company. They, they might be lethal leaders. They might be really awesome. So that, that's, that's, in, that's the dimension that I can remember. Yeah, no, I, I do agree that it's, it's if you really want to understand the situation, the best way is really sit down person to person and talk to that person, not as the CEO of a company in this industry, but as an individual who thinks and acts and decides a certain way, has certain strengths, certain weaknesses.
One of the things we teach in, in the EOS world is this concept of healthy and smart. And the difference is that health, healthy versus smart is most people are kind of taught to be smart. Go read a book, go learn your craft, learn, get, get the technical stuff right, get the regulations right, the laws right, you know, learn the, the data stuff. The smart and the healthy side of it is um, lots of things, politics, openness, and honesty, clear conversations, um, r- your unique abilities in, in Dan Sullivan's terms, you know, what, what are you, what are your God given talents? Are you in the right function? Are you the right role? Self-awareness and a lot of this internal soft stuff. It's in that, that's where it breaks loose. I mean, at some point you're going to hit the ceiling. That concept is real. You're going to get stuck. And when you get stuck, it's probably not just the one technical tidbit you're missing. It's probably something about how you think and how you feel and that self-awareness, uh, the healthy side of that just becomes really hard. So I guess, yeah. That's I would agree. And I, I, I think that was a great lesson I learned from combat was that not necessarily the smartest, strongest, most handsome, most outstanding, most impressive person who's actually going to deliver in the clutch. Sometimes you just don't know. You have no idea mm. of the quiet guy in the room who's going to surprise you and turn the situation around. And that's why I look at character so much. Because at the end of the day, in battle, what really matters is the character of the people you're with and your ability to develop trust and execute at a very high level. So I, want, so I actually, you know, lots, of, lots of things going to mind now in the psychology side of this character, character development. And I, the idea of character is something that is about it's highly judgmental. It's a, you know, do you have good character? Well, that's highly subjective. Like, what do you, what do you think a good character looks like? And I and I don't believe it is obvious that that you could compare two people who have a, an ideal characters described that they would be the same. They they wouldn't be that. But I think it's interesting to think about if someone wants to develop their character. That is not just merely a choice. Like that's a journey. Like you've, I think you have to be able to figure out what your character is. And as I'm saying this, I'm thinking that if I were asked this question, like, would you even know what your character is in the moment? You probably would think, of course. And then after some reflection, it's like, well, maybe I actually have no idea. Maybe my, maybe because a character is end up being, and this is again, this is highly opinionated about what the definition is, but I think your character is represented in your actions. It's not about what you what you want yourself to be. It is about what you actually do. And I don't know how many people are really truly in touch with how consistent they are in their actions for what they think they're holding sacred. And so the so I think coaching in in essence might be driving towards trying to find your ideal character. That is a great insight, Mark, and um I've always thought about character as uh, what I want this person in my tank crew. Can I rely on that person to be there and fulfill the job at the highest level? And will they stand by me? Well, I want to stand by them in, in situations of extreme duress. And that is a number one determinant. And actually, as I think about it, the insight I have as you're talking, Mark, is the five core leadership powers in my mind are actually the definition of our character. 
Okay, so what are they? What are they? So tell tell us a little more specifically about the five leadership uh, yeah. powers. So as I was going through this journey with uh, with Amnon, my mentor, and uh, he kept adding to innate traits that had come out in combat that I had buried, and I, I was able to see myself more completely um, as a whole human being, as a complete character. Um, as living, as, as a coach, as living fulfilled, my effectiveness just rising off the charts in terms of my ability to touch people, I started to notice and I started to look at the leaders I was working with and, and help them see the, their own powers to solve the problems that they might have been avoiding. Um, and so I just found very different combination of powers that people sometimes were not aware of, like, and it just ranges. It's literally there are hundreds of them. Okay, so the five are your five. These and there are, hundreds are my five. Okay. Some of them, just to give you an example, say, like some of the people I think about um, are, um, well, let's talk about you, Mark, no, since we're here. All right, let's do it. So it's, I, just, it's just you and me in here. No, no one's listening. <laughs> yeah, so we're just kind of um, top of mind, stream of consciousness. So like what I know about you, Mark, is, is number one, the number one thing that comes, and, and this is really a question of evolution and conversation and give and take. And the way we know that we've really hit the five core leadership powers is that there is or power by power, there's a physiological response. People get centered, or they get emotional. Okay. They're really focused. There's really, you, you know you're really talking to the absolute core of the person. Um, so for you, I, I know that you're curious. You read books, you go to lectures, you learn, you are driven to learn, you look for coaches, you look for peer groups, you're constantly evolving to the next highest best use of who you are. So I see you as just driven, driven uh, to nothing will stop you from, from evolving to the next level. So I see the, the strong drive. The next thing I really see about you is you're really smart, Mark. You're one of the smartest people I know. Like intelligence, and I've watched you over the years as the intelligence has focused on what I call outer intelligence, the knowledge, facts, data, mm -hmm. books, all that information, as your journey, as you started to focus inward. So you also have a great depth to you. Thank you. <laughs> so that, that would be an example of yeah, how yeah. I'd start a conversation. And those are my observations. What really matters is the physiological state of the person responding. And that tells us, it's kind of like radar, does that tell us, have we hit that ping? Is this the core of who the person is? So those resonate. You know, I, I, I hesitate to get too close to the smart, uh, there's, there's ego and, and uh, you know, that's wrapped up in that, but certainly the driven side of that. I think that's a relatively safe place to, to, to talk. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with the next thing whatever that is. And, and the grow or die mentality is something that I believe is an asset for me. It's certainly my brand is built around that and that's part of how I deliver value to my, to my world. Uh, and at times, it, uh, we've talked about this where that can become either, either a weakness or a distraction or an addiction. 
all of them, all of them can become. In, in my five core leadership power system, all of them, the, the search in life is for the balance point, is where I'm at maximum power, but I haven't overused one power to the extent of another. When I move into addiction, is I'm overusing a power, like I would overthink, I would over-strategize, right, when I was too stressed out, and I couldn't access empathy. Well, how am I feeling about this situation? And I would just stay thinking. Mm -hmm. So strategy and seeing the big picture and how complex things interact is a great part of my strength. Under stress, when we're not aware of all our characters, we'll overuse one or two, and then they become addictive. Yeah, so... How does somebody identify that? You know, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about people who are, you know, stuck in some form of leadership ceiling. Yes. And and they're trying to say, because well, I think the conversation started with you got to know there's, what, that there's a problem. What are you trying to solve for? So you're stuck. You're a leader. You're like, or maybe not even stuck. You're frustrated. It's probably not even clearly. It's not even clearly defined as stuck. You know, like you're like, I want more. And I've wanted more for a while. And I'm trying to get a sense because I'm starting my own journey of what do I need? And identifying the difference between a strength that's gone too far. Visionaries do that all the time. The visionaries I work with, they're they're taking a bigger and bigger bite of the future. And what fuels that organization are all their 20 ideas every single week or every single day in some cases. And then 19 of them are not useful today. And they just feel like a failure because they feel like they're wasting the time of the organization, they're distracting people, they're getting into arguments with, the, with their best leaders, and they're, and they're wrestling ideas to the ground, and they lose sight of the one thing that they brought to the table that was worth it all. And, that, and, and, and they, they can't get around this idea that like, that was enough. Like that one idea and your vision that fuels the organization, and to get that one, you had to kind of fight through 19. Um, and then, so, but they still feel like there's something missing. How do they get them? So what's what's the thought process? How do you coach? How do you guide somebody to start thinking? Sure. So here we are. We start with the frustration. The frustration that I'm at this situation. Say your example we brought with a great visionary who started a company, but but now can't stop visioning and is now creating chaos in his company. Yeah, yeah. The, the biggest threat to a visionary's amazing idea is their next amazing idea. Right. So in that case, and then that person, as you said, gets into conflict and it creates yeah. chaos. And now it started with a pure, beautiful vision, but it ends up with conflict and lack of execution. Yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, right. yeah. So that inner frustration that that person has is a reflection of the fact that they have leadership powers that are not fully expressed. They're trying to express it through one at the expense of others. So, for example, say, if that person had a quality of empathy uh, that they could then discover. They could modulate the visioning with empathy for the people who need to execute it. And they could then stay in the visioning part, but they could build up their empathy communication skills so that they could inspire people to fill the vision. Okay, so I've heard you just talk about this, and I want to make this somewhat tangible to these to, to people listening, and maybe so I'm clear on it. That what you said is not the same thing as fix your weaknesses. It is find your complementary strength. Yes. So you have a natural ability to do one thing and you have something else you can also tap into that will work when that first thing doesn't work. That is not the same thing as doing the opposite of the first thing because that, so you need to have your access to your five 
primary colors of your abilities, and some will counteract others in a way, and you should know what your five are because you can use them. You're not trying to be somebody else. That, that's the difference. You're frustrated. The frustration is a sign that you have that other power, but it's not being activated. Yeah. And what you just said is, is something, is the greatest insight into the nature of the work and the nature almost of life that one of the people I was coaching reflected back to me it was, we all go through life thinking that our problems are our problems, that our problems are our weaknesses, what we're not good enough. And if we could just get better enough at those, mm-hmm. right, 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 then we'd have a great life and we'd achieve everything we want and our companies would run great. Everything would go smoothly. It would be us on our best day forever. Right. And, and the insight of what I'm saying is our problem is, is not the weaknesses that we have. It's the powers that we overuse that, in a sense, we're addicted to. Well, and, and I hate the word balance because I feel like it creates this unrealistic expectation that our lives are kind of like the same formula every day, every, every month. And, I, and I'm a big believer in the power, or the, the concept of seasons. And I think I'm borrowing that from um, Rory Vaden, actually. He talks about this in his books, that like, you know, balance is not real, that there's seasons, and that you've got a recipe. And, and the, I use talk about this all the time like if you want to make a cake uh, and you put flour and sugar and and those ingredients in place and and somebody says you know sugar tastes good let's put some more sugar in there and you keep putting more sugar and more sugar and more sugar and eventually you've got 100 percent sugar that's not a cake you know that's a maybe a hard candy but if you're trying to make a cake that's not the right recipe. That's not about, it's not about balance. It's about what are you trying to make? In this part of my life, in this type of situation, am I sacrificing my time with my friends because I'm trying to graduate med school? That's not balance, but that's a recipe for a, grad, for, for a medical degree and if that's what you, you want. So understanding how those things all fit together. So I don't want, I don't want balance, but it's understanding about uh, when you got something that's woefully out of balance. Like there's a problem coming. How do you counteract that with tools that are accessible to you, not somebody else's tools, like a skill you've got? Yes. And these leadership, for example, your curiosity, your ambition, your drive, your intelligence are innate to you. They're always there. Your form of intelligence is yours. There are other smart people out in the world, but none of them smart the way you're smart. And you have to connect fully with the smartness and the drive and the ambition that is yours and activating the powers that you're not activating yeah. to create the balance so that the recipe, I, I believe that all of us are created with a recipe inside, except we're born without a recipe book. Yeah. The journey of life is to find that recipe so that our life is, is a maximum internal harmony so we're creating the maximum impact outside. And, and, and what I love about that is that, uh, you know, there's the sort of the blank conventional wisdom, weak on your strengths. There's the evolved wisdom, which comes from things like the, uh, the Clifton Strengths Finder and, and that, uh, that idea of work on your, your strength attributes and build those up. And I like kind of where that is, but there's a lot of people who take issue with that. And my experience has been that there's some, somewhere in between, like, because I think the strengths approach at face value makes it seem like you know you just sort of forget about the things you're bad at and you just only do the things you're good at and i don't think that's a recipe for um 
or we talked about this sort of nuanced counteraction of, of, of the negative side effects. And I think what, what I've, there's some research to support this, but I can't reference it right now, so I, I can't give credit to where it's due, but uh, th what we find is that when we have clear aims and clear objectives that our strengths play to, there will be obstacles. And then it involves us doing hard work. And, and we're gonna have to navigate past our own personal weaknesses, our own personal obstacles. And um, it's not all about, ah, well, I'm, I'm terrible at talking to people. So I guess I'm just not gonna talk to people. Like, well, if, you, if your objectives and your strengths line you up to a, an objective that involves talking to people, like you know, doing a podcast or being on stage or writing a book and, and you know, doing a tour or, or leading people or managing people, and you may not be great at managing people by talking to them, but it, you can manage people by data and objectives. And it, well, you're gonna have to figure out how to counteract and, it, and you're gonna have to do some hard work on how to talk to people well enough. And, and you're gonna have to maybe discover what your leadership abilities actually are that you that help you do the very best job at talking to people and it's not about it's like i'm going to be the best talking to people person it's that i'm going to put the recipe together with ingredients i've got that will get me what i want so let's reframe that um i'm not good at talking to people say yeah it was a random thing so, but it's a, hopefully it's not a terrible metaphor we'll see how it works you know it's just a great metaphor so so the impact of saying that as a judgment that then blocks off any possibility of change so i'm now when i start whatever growth i want to have from that position of i'm not good at talking at people i'm foreclosing any growth in talking to people because I, I i've said i'm not good at it yeah the reframe is I was not effective or successful or happy communicating in a specific circumstance. That's true. That's an accurate statement. What can I learn about that circumstance that perhaps caused that ineffectiveness? It's possible that I may be a better communicator than I think when I reframe the experience from the experience defines me as a poor communicator forever and ever and ever in my mind. The instruction to my brain I've just sent is, don't bother trying to communicate to anybody, ever, because you're horrible and you're just going to feel terrible. And the brain's job is to keep you alive and feeling, you, and, and feeling good about ourselves. So I think the reframe that's accurate opens the possibilities because Sometimes we don't know if we're a good communicator or not, or where communication ranks in our five core leadership powers. Is empathy, is it courage, is it curiosity, is it the intelligence, is it the persistentness, is it the ability to inspire people? What is it? Well, in making that as tangible as possible, my, my own personal experience was I had run my business for many years and I had other business leaders I was interacting with and people who worked for me and I and just interactions where I discovered that sometimes it didn't work. Like I felt like I was good enough to be doing it and, and I discovered that there were certain people that just didn't work. And so my first belief around that came to be that, well, some people I click with and some people I don't. So at least there's some optimism that I can do it, but I'm thinking there's 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 a dark spot where you know the sun doesn't shine, and I'm just going to have to accept that that's not where that goes. And then I found a coach uh, who, who said, "Oh, by the way, you are a very good intellectual communicator, 
and you are a horrible emotional communicator. Mm. And that may sound, you know, like no big deal, but in, before that conversation, I had never divided the two up. And I thought I was an amazing communicator unspecified. And now that she had specified and ranked me a high on one area and, and, and really low, because she later went on to say she thought I was one of the worst she had ever encountered. And so that cut me deeply. Suddenly I had no, uh, I had an, ex an experience with that. Now, so what I, that really was humbling. And so I thought, well, what does that mean? Now I've got a whole new journey. What does emotional communication mean? And, and what I learned from that was I was not aware of my own emotions in c communication sometimes. And so if I could communicate that, hey, um, I'm feeling fearful or I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling concerned about something else that may not have anything to do with the words I'm telling you, I could sync up the person I'm talking to with my emotion and they could understand that I was not mad at them because that they, that they, that's what was happening. Like they thought I was mad at them or arguing or fighting with them, but I was really just concerned about something else. And so there's some awareness of, of emotional states. So that was sort of stage two. Then the, That got me a decade, I think. And then the next decade became like, well, that's Could we stop there for sure, a minute? Sure, sure. Because, Mark, because I think your coach did for you what my coach did for me. Okay. Was they helped shine a light on something that we had considered differently, entirely differently. Yeah, yeah. And you are now able to differentiate between, well, intellectually, we all know you're real smart. And you can communicate. Not only are you smart intellectually, but you have a passion about communicating your ideas. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? And that can be a train wreck. <laughs> Well, it's very complex because yeah. you manage an amazing amount of complexity, right? So communication is, is, is matching our style and way to the other person's so they can hear it. And you had this tremendous insight. Hey, I'm great at this type of communication, not so good at this. What does that tell me? That was one important step on your journey yeah. and discovering that. So that, as you say, you could then become a better emotional communicator. Right. And I guess so, I'll even, to, to kind of underscore that point, I, I, I realized I said it kind of flippantly. That was a decade. And the way I meant it was sort of like, you know, that was a, it was a decade again before I learned something even more transformative. But I, to re-say that, like, well, that was actually quite a lot. That was a lot to digest, just that one little tidbit. Like, what is emotional communication? Where do I see it everywhere? Am I, am I self-aware in those? And, and, you know, I probably could have moved that along a lot faster with a different, better coach or whatever if I had pursued it. But it was still a long time of self-discovery and figuring out what it, it was. was a powerful insight yeah it was and so then the third iteration of and, and that's where i'm at in the third iteration and there's probably fourth or fifth coming down the line but it starts to become like well there are i am be a little more aware of some of my emotions and maybe not as aware as i thought maybe there are maybe anger for example is a is a secondary emotion and there's other things like sadness fear disappointment that usually drive anger and, and i haven't been all that aware of, of some of those so asking myself some harder questions that don't have immediate answers and understanding the the root cause of like i i do have a, a feeling of fear or anger or frustration and i'm not sure why like mm -hmm. you know and suddenly it's not just a matter of awareness it's like wait there's something there's something here like you know i'm getting angry frustrated maybe even disproportionately in this situation it's getting it's not serving me i'm not leading as well as i could i would love to be cool and calm under pressure in that state but i'm actually quite out of control that's not great um, i don't believe it's not serving me let's let's go down the path of back to these primary emotions which are actually and, and this is this can be very very difficult stuff for leaders to start at a leader who's supposed to be strong ask them 
what are you afraid of? Do this be vulnerable for a moment. I've actually, because I'm very used to this concept of vulnerability. Could, could we, you, you've said so much. You say something. Could we just, you brought something. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, so I'm going to write down a note because I want to bring back to this idea of vulnerability. You, yes. So for me, because you talked about anger. I, I'm not, my anger is not serving me as a leader in this point. The most outstanding thing that I saw about Amnon, my mentor in battle, was his calmness in battle. And my question was, how does this man maintain his composure under this intense artillery bombardment? Okay, so, so I don't want to stop you, but that is the magic, right? So that is what we're talking, I think that answered the question for me of this context. Like, why do you choose that guy as a coach? He's calm under pressure. Like, I don't even know what that means, but there's a depth and power. There's a character there. I need to discover what that is. What does that mean? And, it's, and, if, you, and if you tap into that wisdom, everything else kind of flows from that. Brilliantly said. And that brought me back to him 30 years later. That stayed with me. How does he stay that cool? How could he achieve that much? How could he overcome such odds? How could he be so compassionate? How could he take care of everybody? How could he defeat an enemy source, an enemy force, ten times his size and be as cool as a cumber? I need to understand that, and I need to understand that. That was a part of me that internally, even though logically I was saying, I have no problems, I have no trauma, I got through the war fine. That was the part of me that was saying, there's an internal lack of, of calm that I need, and I need to connect with him. So you saw the contrast. You were drawn to a light, and that began the journey of co coaching yourself, him, him coaching you, of, of, of getting, getting to uncovering the dissonance. Exactly. Exactly. How did he stay so calm? How was he such an inspiring leader? How could he rally people to stand firm even under the hell of a 45-minute nonstop artillery bombardment where our bodies were literally shaking involuntarily? What power of leadership did he possess? I need to know that. I don't want this to be a non sequitur and throw you off, so just ignore the question if it doesn't make sense. But how does vulnerability play into that? I was being vulnerable. Did but he show vulnerability? Was vulnerability something you saw in him in some way? He showed humanity. He showed humility. He showed concern. He showed love, care for us as soldiers, not to waste our lives, not to send us into futile battles that he would not participate in. He cared for us. We cared for him. There was some sort of connection, human connection, that was essential in the greatest leader I'd ever seen. So the, the concept of vulnerability is very popular right now, and I believe in it, and I think I've, I've taken a little bit of it wholesale, and I'm trying to reprocess, like, because I've sat in, most of the time I say, if a leadership team were coming together, we want to be vulnerable and open. Like, I'm scared of the outcome, and I want to fight to win, and, and, if you, and to the extent that uh, one leader in the room can be open and say, like, I'm scared too, we're, gonna, we're in this together, that's cool, it brings, brings the team together. But then from a leadership perspective, I leave the room. I go in front of the, 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 the staff and, and the team. What does it look like to be vulnerable in front of them? Because I've had teams look at me like, like, I'm, like I'm nuts when I say, like, you got to be vulnerable in this room. And they're like, are you kidding me? That's weak. And I'm like, yeah. no, that's not weak. That's not what I mean. And so I'm, I'm not great with the language of explaining when and how and why. Great question. Um, vulnerability is a leadership tool 
to build trust. And the amount of trust we generate will be proportional to the level of our authentic vulnerability. Like anything, like any buzzword that becomes a mantra, people will say it and go through the motions. The real tool, the real purpose of it, the real purpose of leadership is for people to do things when we're not there, when we can't see them. But we leave that, that imprint of trust. We trust when I show that I'm vulnerable, I'm honest, not as a manipulation, but if I really want you to do what you need to do, even though it's difficult, when I'm not there and the instinct is to cover it up or do it half-assed or just not be as effective as I could or just go through the motions, we do things for causes, for people that are greater than ourselves. What's the thing that's going to be greater than my own self-interest in the moment when I see I want to get out of this spot because it's too hot or I don't want to do this job or I want to finish the, uh, you know, I'll finish these, I'll stop working, it's five o'clock, the assignment is not done. Or am I going to stay till it's done because there's a higher, a higher cause I believe in, a person, um, a group, an organization, a leader who's real, who's given it all for me, I'm going to do no less. Yeah, it's in that realness. It, you know, Patrick Lencioni talks about this and the five dysfunctions of a team, which I'm always teaching my, my, my clients about. The, the bottom layer of the foundation is trust. The opposite of trust is invulnerability. I think that tells a story. Tr if trust comes from, the, from people saying, is that me? Was it me? Was it on me? I think it is me. It's on me. It's extreme ownership. It's Jocko Willink. You know, it's like, it, it's on me. How about that? It's totally on me. I think that's the essence of what vulnerability is. And I think that the most vulnerable people are the strongest, which is different than this weakness of sitting duck vulnerability. Yeah, I, I think um, vulnerability is a tool to build trust. It's also, a, it's a way of being real. And people know when people are being real or not. Most of our experiences are superficial and unreal. And we're not trusting of them. Yeah, what we really crave is real experiences with real people who are really authentic, and that's rare. And when we find that, we want to follow them. The contradiction, I think, comes from you have to be strong enough to be truly vulnerable. Like if you're really in bad shape, like you can't afford to be vulnerable. Like, you, like if you're if you're just not in the right mindset, you don't have the capacity. Like you are vulnerable. Somebody needs to take care of you. If you're a leader, you can't, in the leadership position, you, you have to be actually strong enough that when you let the guard down, there's still a lot of strength left. And there's, you're, you're like, you know, let's be real. Let's show what real and, and give people a sense that this is not a show. And right. I, I think in our minds sometimes there's an equation between invulnerability and strength. You can say anything to me. I'm not going to show an emotion. Right. I'm not going to be hurt. You can do anything to me. I'm strong. That proves that I'm not strong because I'm invulnerable. Yeah. And I think where our society has progressed to the point where we understand that that's not real, that that kind of brittle strength can shatter in the moment of need. Yeah. What we're looking for is, is the real strength inside, underneath. That's why we're being vulnerable, to get to that real strength and be real, connect real relations that inspire people when we're not there. 
So the, that's that's uh, that crystallized it for me to really had it to talk about what the power of vulnerability is. It's about access to authenticity. It's access to what's what is actually real. What is the real problem as a version of as, a, as opposed to the mislead? Like maybe I need to develop something. Maybe I should have done something differently and in the future. I could. That's where the trust comes from. That there's nothing hidden and that what remains is still great. And so it's that authenticity that we're trying to build. Well, that was a very powerful concept for me. That might be a good place to end. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share in final thoughts? Uh, Mark, this has been fascinating. I had no idea where this was going to go when we started. <laughs> me either. That's how this works. But I know you, Mark. I had trust. I didn't know where it was going to go. I knew it was going to be a fascinating interesting, interactive dialogue. It's been illuminating for me. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you can reach me at gadi.pollock. That's G-A-D-I dot P as in Peter, O-L-L-A-C-K at vistage.com. And, and don't worry, we'll, we'll, I'm sorry, I, I talked over you there. So we'll, we'll make sure you get this stuff in the show notes. So it's so say your email address again, but we'll make sure that it's 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 in the clickable in the in the notes. Sure, it's gadi.pollock at vistage.com. Uh, I will have a website up uh, probably within the next ninety days or so, gadipollock.com, where you can see more about the five core leadership powers. So, um, Mark, thank you. It's thank, it's been a wonder. No, thank you. You're you're an inspiration. I appreciate it. You've got so much experience, and I and I, I'm really glad you could take some time and share your experiences with with the group. Thank you, sir.